All right, let me invite you to take your Bible and go to Mark chapter 9. Just a few moments, we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. As you're turning there, I felt it important to just say a word about what we saw in our nation this week. Like many of you, I'm sure, I watched in shock on Wednesday as our nation's Capitol building was stormed by an angry mob looking to disrupt the constitutional process of electing a new president. Now, since then, um, I've read many news stories, watched countless videos, many posted by by people who are roaming through the halls themselves um, with crowds chanting phrases like, hang Mike Pence. You know, after the riots we saw this last summer and then the scenes that we witnessed in the halls of Congress on Wednesday, you may very well be wondering, where do we go from here? What's next? Probably like many of you, I share some concerns about the incoming administration. I have concerns about what will happen to our First Amendment that protects our right to free speech, our right to assemble, and our religious liberty. I think there are valid concerns, but I'm reminded that throughout Scripture, God raised up both wicked and righteous rulers, and that he accomplished his purposes through both of them. In his letter to the Romans, which was written, by the way, under Nero, a notably wicked ruler, one who would crucify Christians and then light them on fire to, to light the streets. Under that ruler, Paul wrote these words in Romans 13. Let everyone submit to the governing authority, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit. Not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. For this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities that are God's servants continually attending, since since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect and honor to those you owe honor. I understand these words are easier to hear when we're dealing with an administration with earthly rulers that we agree with. But we're not given a caveat if we disagree with the rulers that God has placed over us. I found this excerpt from from the book called How the Nations Rage by Jonathan Lehman to be really helpful. 
He writes, none of us knows what's ahead for the nation. The battle might temporarily grow fiercer. It might temporarily improve. We do know the nation will rage against our God and against his anointed. The anointed one, his son Jesus, promised that they will do this until he returns. Yet the political hopes of the church remain unchanged, untroubled, untouched. After all, our life is a supernatural life and our work is a supernatural work. Our work, therefore, is no harder or easier than it's ever been. It is always depended entirely upon God. We should not be naive about the forces of darkness arrayed against us, but fear and withdrawal make no sense for the church. We press on as we always have. Yet if I'm going to have hope for the nation, I cannot place it in the nation. I will place it in healthy churches. Nearly every founder was weaned on the moral virtues of Christianity, even if many of them eventually rejected its doctrines. They inconsistently applied the lessons, but they were taught to regard human beings as created in God's image, each person worthy of dignity and respect. They inherited an understanding of rights and the conscience of equality from a faith that has, that yes, they variously kept at arm's length. God's common grace grants many a nation better than it deserves, but I have little confidence that America will long remain strong, prosperous, and free without any concept of God's righteousness and justice somewhere in the background. If there is hope for the nation, it's through the witness and work of churches. Our congregations have the opportunity to be live, to, to live transformed lives as a transformed culture through a transformed politics in their own fellowships right now, all for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. And we will become such heavenly outposts when we focus first not on the public square, but on preaching the word and making disciples. Together, those disciples must grow up to maturity into Christ as each part does its work. The resonant effects in the home, the marketplace, the public square, and the rest of life then follow. So that's our task, to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and on growing our faith in him. And that's what we're going to do this morning in Mark chapter 9. Last week, we looked at the transfiguration. This, this picture of Jesus being fundamentally transformed, or the, the actual word is metamorphed in front of Peter, James, and John. And this morning, we'll see the disciples coming off the mountain and as they do, they're met with the harsh reality of a fallen world. So the question before us this morning is, how did they and, and how did Jesus respond? And that's what our text is going to tell us this morning. So if you will, stand with me as we read Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. 
He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought him, they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a dead corpse, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him up and raised him and stood up. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you and with this text before us as we look at the power of faith. As we look at the power of, of this Father's confession, I do believe, help my unbelief. Perhaps for many of us, that's our cry day in and day out. I do believe, help my unbelief. Pray you'd open our eyes this morning to your text and what it looks like to trust in you even more deeply day in and day out. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now here's our big idea for the morning. In this text, we, we see this clearly. Even the smallest faith placed in the right person is enough to save. Even the smallest faith placed in the right person is enough to save. Because see, that what we see consistently throughout the Gospels, throughout the entire Bible, is not that you have to have enough faith to save you. It's that you have to have faith in the right object. If my car is broken down, it doesn't matter how much faith I have in my car to start, right? Eventually, it's, it's, it's not going to work. I can't will my car to start. So what matters then is not the amount of faith that I have, but it's the object that I place that faith in. And just a small amount of faith. If I recall, Jesus said, faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. So the smallest faith placed in the right person is enough to save. Now, if you've looked at your bulletin this morning, you'll see we have seven points. Don't freak out, okay? We're just going to walk through this passage methodically. We're going to see everything that's going on here and what this confession, this, this father's confession, I do believe, help my unbelief, what it meant for him, what it means for us. So we start with the confrontation, verses 14 through 16. Jesus and Peter, James and John come off the mountain 
and they see a large crowd gathered around them, we, we think that that them is the other disciples, the other nine disciples. And scribes, religious leaders disputing with them. And the whole crowd saw him, saw Jesus. They were amazed and they ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about? So, I mean, this was, a, this was not a, a small argument, right? And Jesus walks up, the crowd runs to him, and, and essentially, Jesus asks the question of, of what on earth is going on here? Perhaps it was something like, a, a, for, I'll show my age here, for those of you who grew up with, uh, with Saved by the Bell, Mr. Buildings, what is going on here? Okay. Or, or a parent, right? What, 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 what is happening? I find it interesting that verse 17, what we're told is, is someone from the crowd. So the disciples didn't say, well, this is what's happening. The religious leaders didn't immediately pointing finger, point fingers. They, they, they perhaps are, uh, perhaps the commotion keeps going on and there's no real clear answer about what's going on, but that's the confrontation. Jesus and Peter, James, and John come off the mountain, immediately see this, the disciples engaged in this argument with a crowd and with the religious leaders, and it's chaotic. This mountaintop experience, like, like last week, if you remember, um, Peter t- saying to, to Jesus and saying to the other disciples, hey, let's just set up three shelters. The Bible says he didn't know what else to say, so he just starts talking, uh, He's, but, but Peter's motivation there was to stay on the mountain. Let, let's stay here. This is great. Like we're seeing Jesus in all his glory. Um, Elijah and Moses are here. This is awesome. Can't we stay here? And as I said last week, mountaintop experiences, while good, are never meant to be the norm of the Christian life because where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life is in the valleys, and the, Jesus and his disciples enter into the brokenness of the world as they come off the mountain. That leads to the crisis, verses 17 and 18. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. And now we have some light shed on what caused the confrontation to begin with. Perhaps it's, it's at least likely that the, the religious leaders were ridiculing the other nine disciples because they could not drive out this demon. Something, this demon that was causing something like epilepsy in this young boy. So here we have the crisis. Young boy with this spirit, with this disorder. Seizes him, throws him down. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Now keep in mind that earlier, Jesus had sent his disciples out. They had gone out preaching the word. They had gone out even driving out demons. So they had done this before. So perhaps they, when they encountered this, they thought, no big deal. Been there, done that. We, we can take care of this. And suddenly they couldn't. 
Perhaps they found their own faith wavering. Verse 19, we see the condemnation. Jesus actually issues this condemnation. Now the question is, who is he saying this to? Is he saying this to the disciples? Is he saying this to the crowd? Is he saying this to the religious leaders? Uh, is he saying it to all of the above? At this point, we don't, we, we don't really know. Other than Jesus is exasperated by what he's seeing, and this is what he says. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. Do you know the thing that consistently frustrates Jesus throughout the Gospels is a lack of I think at least in part, Jesus is addressing his disciples here. Has he not shown them who he is? He's told them repeatedly. They're still not getting it. They still don't have the faith. Perhaps in, and I think what he's exposing here is that the disciples were not thinking through the power of God, we can drive this out, but they Perhaps we're thinking, in our own power, we can drive this out. It's worked before. All we've got to do is issue the command. Maybe they were even thinking, hey, we're something special because we're the guys that Jesus picked to be with him on earth. We got this. You unbelieving generation. How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. Beginning in verse 20, we see the condition that this boy is in. So they brought the boy to him. When the Spirit saw him, when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. So here we see that while this was certainly uh, maybe something uh, akin to what we would know as, as epilepsy, there's something much deeper going on here because as soon as the spirit, we're told within the boy, sees Jesus, it, it throws him into these convulsions. Verse 21, Jesus asks, how long has this been happening to him? And the father replies, from childhood. And look at 22. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Here we have the condition of the boy, and it's not good. Comes upon him, throws him into water, throws him into fire, as it says, the spirit See, within the boy, seeks to destroy him. And there we have the enemy's plan. Always. John 10, 9 and 10. The thief comes to kill and destroy, but I've come that they may have life. The enemy's plan, and, and, and by that I don't mean the Republicans or the Democrats. We have one enemy. His name is Satan. His plan is to destroy you. His plan is to destroy me. His plan is to disrupt unity. 
he can have people who claim to be followers of Christ distracted by other things going on in the world and tearing each other apart, he's happy with that. And I don't think he cares if it's churches fighting over whether or not a virus is real, whether or not we should be asked to wear masks when we come into worship, whether or not we should stop gathering or keep on meeting, or whether or not we're going to tear ourselves apart over political divisions. I don't think he really cares. His mission is to destroy in any way possible. And I like that, that we see here, we see the Father's absolute desperation. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Perhaps like the woman with the issue of blood, this, this family has spent incredible amounts of money taking the boy to doctors, taking him to anyone who could offer some sort of relief for this boy's condition, and, and obviously nothing's getting better. He's at a point of desperation. And he simply tells Jesus, if you can do anything, help us. And then we see the confession, verses 23 and 24. Jesus said to him, he repeats his words to him, if you can. And gives him this wonderful promise. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Now, we've taken this and, and we've abused that last line, right? Everything is possible for the one who believes. If you, be, if you believe it, you can achieve it. That's not what he's saying here, right? This is not an invitation to go live your best life now. This is an invitation to believe the promises of Jesus and to see him work powerfully in our lives. In verse 24, we see the, how the father understood this. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. I'm not sure there's a more pure confession of faith in all of Scripture. I, I do believe with as much as I possibly can, I believe. Help my unbelief. There are some things that I don't understand. There are some, 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 some areas where I'm struggling to believe, Lord, but I believe as much as I can. Help my unbelief. I'm not sure there's a better confession for any of us because if, if I can be completely honest, I've been following Jesus for uh, over 30 years now. And there's still days, there are a lot of days, this is the best I can do. Lord, I believe there are questions that I can't answer. There are things that I don't understand about how you're at work, especially if, if I can just be honest over the last year. 
I don't know about you, I've looked at a lot of things that are happening in, in our world over the past year, and, and at times I just ask, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't see how God is in control. But I believe. Perhaps someday this side of glory will get a glimpse into all that God is doing throughout these days. In some cases, perhaps we're going to be like the saints of old that Hebrews 11 talks about. and says they did not see the promise fulfilled in their days, but they believed. They had faith. And the Bible says that's all that's required is faith. I do believe. Help my unbelief. And here's Jesus' reaction to that. Verse 25, the command. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26, Then it came out shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. Faith of the Father. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus honors that. Heals the boy. And as far as we can tell, his healing was complete and immediate in that instance. Verse 28, the disciples are still wrestling with why they couldn't drive this demon out. They're still wrestling with their own perhaps lack of faith. And, and Jesus simply says, or verse, verse 28 said, after he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, isn't this interesting? This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Prayer, of course, is the ultimate act of dependence upon God. Prayer is crying out to God because we recognize our powerlessness why we pray for things that we have no control over. We believe God does. And here in, in the passage before us, we see the link between prayer and faith. Having faith in a God whom we do not completely understand, whom we will not understand, having faith in a God whose ways we will not always understand demands that we pray. Declaring our dependence upon God. Which takes us right back to the beginning, to the big idea. Even the smallest faith placed in the right person 
is enough to save. We've talked a lot, heard a lot of conversations through the last year about faith in earthly things being shaken. As we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, our faith perhaps in bank accounts was shaken. Seen our faith in, our, our collective faith as, as Americans, seen our faith in news outlets shaken. Seen our faith in our government systems shaken. I'm a Cowboys fan. My faith was never very strong there to begin with. But Almost methodically, we've seen these, if, if I can use the term, if you want to call them idols, things that perhaps we have propped up outside of their proper place and, and placed more value on them than they should have, we, we've seen our faith in those things cut away. Could it be that God's doing something? That God is revealing idols in our lives in order that we might not place faith in earthly things, but faith in him alone. When it comes to placing faith in him, even the smallest faith, placed in the right person, is enough to save. Romans 10, 9, and 10 is a passage that I think we often use in regards to salvation, in, in, in coming to faith. And I think that's the, that's the context in which it's written. And yet, I think for the believer, these words ring true as well. Going back to the Father's confession in the passage we, had, we read this morning, I do believe, help my unbelief. Look at the simplicity of this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. So maybe you're here and let me speak to those who are followers of Christ first of all this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling to believe. You're struggling to trust that God is in control. After the year that we've had, after the the if, I mean, after the week that we experience, or the year that we experienced this last week, it, that that's easy to that, that would, that's easy to do. It's easy to wonder, God, where are you? My encouragement to you is don't disbelieve. Call out to him. I do believe. Help my unbelief. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, the call today is simple. Place your faith in him. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. We have that promise. It's that simple. Ask him to forgive your sins, to be your savior. 
And then as we depart, as we move from being the church gathered to being the church scattered this week, not knowing what this week will hold, we go as people who are not trusting in a government, who are not trusting in bank accounts, who are not trusting in a president, but are trusting in a Savior. And a Savior who will never abandon us. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance for us to gather. May we never, never take that for granted. But may we trust that you are in control. We gather this morning as a declaration to ourselves, as a declaration to the world that we serve you alone, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that means no one else is. Yet we have trouble believing. We have doubts that creep in. Will you remove those? Will you help us to trust even in the middle of doubt? And we cry out as simply as the Father did, I do believe, help my unbelief. Trust that you're in control. We trust that you are good. We trust that you have good things in store for your people. So we pray for your protection. We pray that you will preserve your church as you've promised to do. that we would, as citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of heaven, find our identity in you. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.